Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning. Morning. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be here with you worshiping. Um, and, and welcome um, for those of you who are visiting. I'm Father Morgan Reed. I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Um, and let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, on this uh, chilly January morning, we are continuing our series uh, that we've called Nations and Neighborhoods. And we started it at the beginning of Epiphany, which started on January 6th. And, And it takes this idea that the salvation of Jesus is reaching out to the ends of the earth. And then that, that salvation, the way we're asking it in this series is reorient, reorienting ourselves to ask the question, what does my life, what is my household, what is my neighborhood, what role do those play in God's plan of salvation for the neighborhoods? What is my life, my household, my neighborhood, what role do those play uh, in the salvation plan of God for the nations? And as a part of this series, then, some of the things that I'm going to be doing are telling some stories, uh, stories about the places that we live or that we're traveling by that can reorient us and and to the spaces that we inhabit, where we live, where we work, where we play, where we worship. And being Anglican actually roots us in an area. This is something that drew me into Anglicanism. It's it's not an attractional model, per se, where we have a high high power... um, Speaker, praise God, because, you know, we wouldn't have a church. Um, But uh, we are oriented to a neighborhood. And that's been historically true in this area. Um, Before, you know, 10 years ago or so, to be Anglican was to be Episcopalian. So if you look at all the Episcopal churches that dot the landscape around northern Virginia historically, they weren't trying to build mega churches. What they were trying to do was increase geographic access for people to worship and to foster civic engagement in the life of an area, a region, a neighborhood, and and to have a meaningful presence there. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to look at a story from this neighborhood that we're in now, uh, as, as well as the miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And I think that both things, uh, the story from the neighborhood and the story from the miracle of Jesus teach us something about faith and the ways that God wants to lavish his grace on us and on the neighborhoods that we're a part of or that we come across. So if we look back at least at European history, uh, we can see that this area that we're in now, Springfield and West Springfield, they were granted to a few very uh, to a few loyalists of King Charles II as early as 1649. So think like 100 and almost 150 years before the Revolutionary War. Um, eventually, about 100 years later, this area would be part of Fairfax County. And that was in 1742. Again, so I think this area um, was inhabited or at least deeded out before the Revolutionary War. 
The name Springfield wasn't originally used, but what, um, but it was used um, to describe what this area was, which was streams that cut through this area. No matter where you go in Springfield, it seems like there's always streams that cut through forests. That was true uh, then, and it, and it wasn't it wasn't really used until the 1850s. Uh, that term Springfield until. Dangerfield, if you guys know Dangerfield Island over in Alexandria, that Dangerfield had a farm out here, and he called it a Springfield farm, and then they built a train station on his farm, and that uh, train station took the name Springfield. So in the 1850s, they started using the name Springfield for this area. That station was for the Orange and Alexandria Railroad line, which if you go to Lake Akatink, you can still uh, see remnants of that uh, train, the train tracks and the train line there. That had been, again, built on uh, Dangerfield Spring, Springfield Farm. So that station is long gone, obviously. But if you look, um, there's still a historical marker of where it was on Backlick Road just north of the, of the Beltway. Springfield doesn't actually have a large influx of population until just after World War II. This area was, you know, had a few main farm roads, but there was no town center. You can find some of those main roads going back to pre-revolutionary war times, but it isn't until what uh, Shirley Highway was built, which we know of as I-95. Once that was built in 1949, the populations in the suburbs and in D.C. started flocking to the countryside, which this was the countryside, and then they started developing the countryside. So even this Springfield United Methodist Church that we are renting from, this building itself wasn't built until the 50s. It was part of those people, the post-World War II boom of people coming out to the countryside. That's who built this church. It's not as though there was no history in the area before the 1950s, um, but a lot of it wasn't written down. And as I did some research on this area, there was one story that was fascinating. It caught my eye. And it was the story um, about the street uh, on which the church is actually built, which is called Old Keen Mill Road. And as you would expect, uh, there was a mill at one point. Uh, it belonged to the Keene family. And, and in this area, so not only was there the Keene family, there were two other families that sort of settled this area um, from here over to West Springfield along the Pohig Creek. And, and that, unfortunately, this is, was true of many in Virginia and in the South. Uh, each of those family, families held dozens of slaves. And so when you look at the immediate population of this area, uh, this is back in the 1800, early 1800s, this area was a few middle-class households and then dozens of enslaved persons who worked the land. These were farming communities. And um, there was a grist mill, a sawmill grist mill, that the, the family owned it had been built on the property by 1800. And even though that mill is long gone, it, there's still a historic marker. So if you want to go see where it was, you just take Old Keene Mill down and take a ride on Huntsman Boulevard, and the historic marker is right there where the mill used to be. There was this strange event in the life of William Keene, and it really marked his life, actually, that there was one day where two of the other families, uh, the Halls and the Barkers, John Hall and William Barker, who were friends of Keene, they're said to have come to Keene's house, and they were having a discussion about where Hall, someone in Hall's family is. Maybe it was his daughter. It was a woman in his family who lived with the Keens, apparently. And uh, he told him, 
I don't know where she is. And in the course of that conversation somehow, Keen pulls out a knife and kills Hall. Uh, he stabs Hall, and then Hall and Barker, he's not dead yet, they go over to the Sutherland's house and um, at Mrs. Sutherland's residence. And by then, uh, he passes away when they're at the Sutherland's house. And then Mr. Keen is arrested for murder. He's found guilty. He's sentenced to hanging. But eventually, Keen is not hung. We don't know what happened to Keen in prison. It's a mystery. But we know that he wasn't hung. His defense made the argument, and probably rightfully so, that actually what happened in that dialogue was that all three of them had drunk way too much whiskey, and in a drunken stupor, Keen had killed Hall, um, whatever that argument was about. It's a fascinating, it's a sad story, um, and we're fortunate enough to actually have documentation to kind of piece that stuff together, but it gives you a sense about the vices of the 19th century uh, middle class in this particular neighborhood. And, and there are streets named after all of those people uh, throughout Springfield and West Springfield. There's a Hall Court. There's a Barker's Crossroads where Rolling Road hits the Fairfax County Parkway. And there's actually a Hall and Sutherland Family Cemetery. So all of these people are really entrenched. Their families are entrenched in this area. So again, we don't know what happened to Keen after he went to prison. And I'm sure he wasn't thinking they're going to name a road after me, right? But the property would stay in his family for just a little more than a decade. And then that was sold off. And the mill must have been gone from the property by 1869 because it sold for like $300, <coughs> which indicates the mill was gone. And so we don't really know anything about what's happening in this neighborhood from 1869 to about 1958. Um, what was called Old Keen Mill Road when this church was originally built was a two-lane road. And by the time we get to the 1970s, this area just had a ton of people. They expanded Old Keen Mill to four lanes. And so Springfield has layers of history that we are walking into. Some of it's recorded, and some of it we'll have no access to. And whether the history is written or not, what I think is important is that people indelibly leave a mark on the area that they inhabit and, that the, and in the area that they leave behind. And many of our main roads, actually all of our main roads, have been built by other people. One of the lessons that I take from Keen's story is that um, our connections with other people, the, the relationships that we form, those are the spaces where God is writing the story of an area. The diverse communities now that make up Springfield are connected by those centuries-old farm roads. Um, and, the, and those are now our main thoroughfares. And God desires to save a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that means that the followers, as followers of Christ, you and I are called to bring his good news into an area through relationships. The, the relationships that we've been cultivating and we find the good news today in our story in the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. In the story that we read in the gospel today, Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And in that time, hospitality was a really big deal. So there was a lot of shame associated when you ran out of food or wine during a banquet. I mean, imagine the rage you would feel if, um, you know, after church. We ran out of coffee, you know, on a really cold day. Uh, that's like a taste of what it would be like in the shame culture uh, around, you know, not having enough to show proper hospitality. The wine had run out. And so Jesus's mother comes to him. Apparently she knows that 
He can fix this problem. She comes to him not as her son, but as a miracle worker. And so what we see here is that he doesn't answer her as his mother, but he answers her as, his, as her Lord. He says, woman, uh, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Sounds incredibly rude, right? But it's, it's not as rude uh, in their culture as it sounds in ours. Um, you know, I would be hesitant to say to my own mother, listen, woman, uh, that would not be ideal. And, uh, you know, even though it wasn't rude, it was cold uh, and it was impersonal. And it would hardly be the way that you would actually address your mother in that culture. But Jesus knows that this is not the hour to reveal his glory. When we talk about revealing Jesus' glory in the Gospel of John, we're talking about the process that leads to his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Jesus is as conquering king. It wasn't time to enter into that suffering. And by taking these vessels, these vessels that were meant for Jewish purification and taking away. And if Jesus were to take away that means of purification, Jesus runs the risk of starting a series of clashes between his kingdom and the institutions that are current in his time. And the hour involves those clashes. St. John doesn't give us a lot of details in his narrative about Jesus's life. And so when we come to a detail like we find here, we pay attention. He says, now there were six water jars there for the rites of the Jewish rites of purification. When we find something like that, we need to stop and ask, why is he giving us so much detail? So he could have just said there were some vessels there that were carrying water. But he wants us to focus on something, um, and specifically the fact that they were there for purification. And Jesus suspends, what is he suspends ritual purity as an act of love for a bride and groom in order to fill the jars miraculously with wine for the banquet. And he, what he does then is he devalues ritual purity and then inaugurates those clashing of values that will ultimately lead him to the cross. So Jesus shows in this first sign of revealing his glory that he is sufficiently able to redeem you and to redeem me, uh, that he's able to redeem a people and to bring them into the fullness of God's life and joy. He takes those things that are common, that are inadequate, and he fills them with his grace. And so we may find ourselves trusting in things that can't bring us spiritual renewal or the life of God adequately. Um, But it's Jesus here who gives the renewal that we long for in abundance. So there's this really helpful quote about this by a late 4th, early 5th century church father named uh, St. Maximus of Turin. He says, by his reply, my hour is not yet come. He was foretelling the most glorious hour of his passion and the wine of our redemption which would obtain life for all. Mary was asking for a temporal favor, but Christ was preparing joys that would be eternal. Nevertheless, the Lord in his goodness did not refuse this small grace while greater graces awaited. And so what this sign communicated to the disciples is that they could trust him for the greater graces of God. He was abundantly sufficient to provide that for them. And all of us need a restored, renewed relationship with our creator. And so when I see those jars of purification in the story, one of the things that I see a symbol of is those temporary things that we might be tempted to trust in that can't ultimately bring us the abundant life of God. 
in the story of God's redemption of his people. We might trust in self-sufficiency, my own ability to do good, the job that we have, might trust in the money that we accumulate or the education that we uh, accrue. Each of those things are, are good things and they're, they're best when they are subsumed under the story of God's redemptive plan that God wants to tell in you and that he wants to tell through me. And it's when any of those become a God and end in themselves, when we trust in those things, that we actually start to forget what story God wants to tell in the areas that we inhabit. And you and I have been placed in neighborhoods. Not all of us here. We do worship here. But all of us have been placed in neighborhoods that that we didn't build, that are connected by roads that we didn't plan. And those are limits that have been placed on us. And even though many of us didn't grow up in this area, God has placed us here for his plan of the redemption of the nations. And so I shared uh, with some of you a time long ago where Father Ryan and I had done a prayer walk and we were walking around praying for the neighborhoods down in the Saratoga area of Springfield. We were handing out service cards. We both had our collars on that day. And so people were generally happy to see us, which is strange and unique and wonderful. And um, we walked on one side of the street. We were knocking on doors, large single family homes. Uh, People had been there for a long time. They were very friendly with us. But because they'd been there at least 20 years, they all had churches and communities. That's great. And as such, um, you know, they had a church home. And so they were happy to receive prayer from these uh, meandering priests who were going around the neighborhoods. And then what we did is we said, hey, let's cross the street to the town home. So we crossed the street uh, down uh, over to the townhouses. And then a lot less people opened doors, which I thought was interesting. But when they did, we we had a similarly friendly greeting from people. They were happy to open the doors and chat. It also wasn't 19 degrees. Um, But I think, by contrast, the people in the townhouses had probably been there, on average, less than two years. And so they were hungry for community. Um, Those townhouses were more diverse as well in all the ways that diversity might be uh, spelled out. And so Springfield, like much of Northern Virginia, has a lot of inflow and outflow. It's It's a diverse mixing bowl of cultures, classes, languages. And Jesus wants to pour the wine of his salvation into the neighborhoods that you and I inhabit. And there's still a bit of that, you know, laid back, farm-style hospitality that you find almost anywhere in Springfield. I find that to be a unique grace on this area that I haven't found necessarily in other places in Northern Virginia. And because that spirit is still here, I would love for us to be a place, you know, as the pandemic allows, where neighborhood gatherings happen around tables, around fire pits, in front lawns, other community spaces. This area... Uh, is a long ways away from that original you know, settlement of a few families that were connected by farm roads. But it is those old farm roads that still exist as our thoroughfares that now connect all the communities that are here that make up the area and you know, the story of God's redemption in this place. So relationships in those communities are the fertile ground for telling God's story and letting it take shape. Uh, One writer said it this way. She said, you know, it's using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors into the family of God. It's the nature of hospitality. 
It's that simple act of just making space for ordinary hospitality and in those you know, key relationships that we create, the special moments where we discover God's stories of redemption in other people and we're able to share our story of redemption with others. And that is one of the reasons that, you know, next week we're going to be starting our formation group. And I'm really excited for that formation group on Sunday afternoons because that is a very tangible space for hospitality and connection. There's a history that is being written in this neighborhood and in the, in the neighborhoods that you inhabit as well. We're all over the place. And it's a story of Jesus's resurrection glory being continually revealed in common people who are being transformed by God's grace. Jesus wants to take those water pots of purification that people have, those inadequate things that people are trusting in, uh, whether it's us or our neighbors, and, and he wants to surprise us with the abundance of his salvation by filling up those inadequate things with himself. And so we only discover that those water pots, what, what they are, and, and the abundance of his grace when we're in relationship with other people. He grants us small daily graces that point us to the abundance of the greater graces that he wants to give us. The places that you and I inhabit uh, are part of that story of redemption that God's telling about the salvation of the nations around us. And so as you drive along Old Keen Mill, maybe once a week, maybe more, um, I want Old Keen Mill Road to be a reminder to all of us of our calling to bring the gospel with us into the relationships that God is creating for us, around us. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, our Savior, you desire that none should perish, and you have taught us through your Son that there is great joy in heaven over every sinner who repents. Grant that our hearts may ache for a lost and broken world. May your Holy Spirit work through our words, deeds, and prayers. That the lost may be found and the dead made alive. And that all your redeemed may rejoice around your throne. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.